0: everyone, welcome to episode number 65 of the Sleep Whisperer podcast and I'm here with Dr. Stasha Gomenak today. Dr. Gomenak grew up and attended college in California, moved to Houston for medical school at Baylor College of Medicine where she received an MD degree. In 1983, her neurology residency was done... In the Harvard-affiliated Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, she practiced neurology in the San Francisco Bay Area from 1991 to 2004 and then moved to Texas with her husband. Starting in 2004, she began to dedicate more of her practice to the treatment of sleep and sleep disorders. In 2012 and 2016, she published two pivotal articles about the global struggle with worsening sleep, possible causes and solutions related to vitamin D deficiency in the intestinal microbiome. In 2016, she retired from her office practice to have more time to teach. And she currently divides her time between right sleep coaching sessions to private individuals and teaching other clinicians the right sleep method of sleep repair. This episode is filled with clinical wisdom and pearls, especially if you are a health practitioner. What are the role of nutrients to restore the microbiome? How can they restore someone's biochemistry? What's the role of vitamin D? What's the link between B vitamins and the microbiome? Why are there eight Bs? Take a listen. And if you've missed episode number 64 of the Guided Sleep Meditation, take a listen. The Journey to the Womb Meditation is specially curated by Himalayan Yogi for you to connect with your roots to help you purge inhibitions, fear, insecurity and external shackles that hold you back. If you want to be grounded and rooted, connect to your inner child. This one's a beautiful meditation for you. And these short meditations are meant to be played every single night. Remember, it's that 10 minutes of every night that actually starts to shift your physiology and just move you into a state where you're have a more powerful effect in terms of healing yourself completely. Welcome to the Sleep Whisperer Podcast. I'm your host Deepa. Join me and my many expert guests and medical professionals from the cutting-edge science of functional medicine of the West and ancient wisdom of the East. Learn all about how to discover your root causes of poor sleep and understand the proper tools and techniques to end your confusion and begin getting a good night's sleep. It's time to regain hope and begin your sleep journey with the Sleep Whisperer podcast. Dr. Gominak, it's a pleasure to have you on the Sleep Whisperer podcast. And I know that recently sleep has got so much interest, but you've been focused on sleep from 2004, I think. And uh, I'd love to actually know what. Triggered you to move towards that focus on sleep way back then when sleep didn't have so much of uh, importance. It wasn't. It's not. It wasn't given the due that it is being given today. And in our conversation today, I'd like us to take a deep dive into vitamin D, B vitamins, acetylcholine, because I know that's something which I really have a personal interest in. You had two papers published about the importance of sleep and you spoke a lot about the connection between vitamin D and sleep. So before we jump into our conversation of all these vitamins, I'd love to know what actually prompted you so early on to move towards this focus on sleep. Thank you for inviting me Deepa. It's my
1: pleasure and my honor to be here to talk to you. Um, I'm a neurologist and I was, uh, I was treating patients with uh, daily headache, with epilepsy, Parkinson's. Many of my daily headache sufferers were uh, patients I, that I would be seeing for many years. One of those daily headache sufferers after about two years of seeing me and going on the usual medicines that we would give to prevent headaches, Uh, sort of demanded a sleep study and she was young and healthy didn't have a fat neck at that time we were still in the mindset of oh these are elderly or older males that are overweight so I really didn't think there was any reason to investigate a sleep study in her but she insisted and I did a sleep study and she had sleep apnea that in and of itself wouldn't have been so remarkable what was remarkable was she put on one of those CPAP masks and her headaches went away and I had this very chemical view of migraine. I have a very uh, science-based, they're channel disorders. It's, so I have a, an idea about what I think causes migraine and why the medicines work. And they hadn't worked and strapping on this torture device made her headaches go away. That to me was totally fascinating. She had episodes where she stopped breathing. So the dogma at the time and still most of the dogma now is you stop breathing, your brain gets stressed by that, your sympathetic tone goes up and that's why you're sick. Um, I think it's not exactly that. And the reason why I look at it differently is I then started to do sleep studies in hundreds of young, healthy females, teenagers who had daily headache because if she could get better, I thought these people could too. And daily headache sufferers are willing to do almost anything. They have a miserable life and have very poor success with them. So most of those studies then did not show sleep apnea. That was the weird part. They have daily headache. They can't remember, they're in a bad mood, but they did not stop breathing. They just did not have REM sleep. They didn't have rapid eye movement sleep. It was shortened or they just stopped breathing in REM sleep. So over a period of about a year and a half, they had a very pretty uniform result. The thing that was difficult about that was if you don't stop breathing, then it makes no sense to wear a CPAP device. And then what are we left with? Like Because that woman as a first one got better, I thought, well, that means if you could get into deep sleep and stay there, because that's really all that machine is doing. She did not have drops in oxygen. My other patients did not have drops in oxygen. So that leaves this dogma that says oxygen goes down, these effects. That's down to the side. What is it that's wrong with my patients who don't have drops in oxygen, who just can't get into REM? How does that work exactly? That's not about the throat. That must then be about the brain. Mm. So that's what got me interested in sleep.
0: And did you feel way back then that insomnia itself was a little misunderstood?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, we, it's ignored. So if I'm going to just take all the women who come to see me for daily headache, I began to realize that every single one of them had a sleep disorder. Some of them recognized it as such. Some of them slept but felt tired. Most of them would wake up at 3 a.m. and then feel like their sleep was not restorative after that. Many of them had insomnia of various kinds. And I began to realize that insomnia was completely ignored. And we were just taught to actually blame the patient for not doing it right. And at least we could say, I'm sorry, you're not sleeping. I don't know why. And in fact, we don't know why. I still don't know why. I have some of my ideas and some things that have worked and I have hypotheses about how we got here. So in a general sense, one, I had slept well my whole life until this time in my life when I was in my late, late 40s, early 50s and now started to get perimenopausal and now my sleep started to go bad. So I had a personal investment and it is my belief that unless you've slept badly yourself, you really have no interest and, yes. you, and you can't understand the complaint. We think it's just, oh, well, why don't you just lay down? And uh-huh. and sleep? I mean, what's so hard about that? So you have to be able to experience that yourself. You know that you want to go to sleep. You feel sleepy or maybe you don't even feel sleepy. You have to experience that yourself to be able to be empathetic towards someone else. And then once you're there with that person and all you have in terms of things to offer them are blue blocking glasses, go to bed at a certain time, close up. And they've already done all of that. When they walk in the door and say, I've done all the following Right. Then you're left looking at that person
0: thinking, well, what should we do now? Mm. And do you feel this so do you feel this lack of empathy has changed now or is it still perpetuating all over? I I feel that
1: many of the physicians who've gone from being regular MDs toward functional medicine do that because they have their own illness hmm. that's not addressed yes. in regular medicine okay i also think that naturopath so i'm now because i stumbled into vitamins so i came into vitamins pretty much kicking and screaming against my will because i'm trained as a regular md we were told to forget about them in the 80s i had no training and That means I really now have one foot in regular medicine and one in the supplement world. I have my own unique ideas all based on what I saw happen to my patients. So I didn't actually start with the vitamin literature. What I started with was, gee, there must be something wrong. They can't sleep. These sleep studies show this particular phase of REM is gone. What's the science about that? How do we get into REM? What are the cells that do that? I'm a neurologist. This isn't my field. This shouldn't be the lung doctors that are treating that. They make the machines that blow air in, but we're responsible for the actual neurology of how we fall asleep and stay asleep. So I got heavily into the cellular literature about the pacemaker cells that time our sleep and allow us to transition through the phases of sleep. And then through a series of uh, kind of weird accidents, I had a patient who was 18, beautiful girl about to go off to college. Her sleep study showed that she slept for 10 hours. She had no deep sleep at all, none. Yeah. Every, every, every two minutes she would wake to light sleep. And it was my suspicion that she, her brain was trying to transition into deep sleep there, but was unable to. And the reason why we did it, her headaches went away with medicines, but she was very, very tired, and because of her continuing tired complaints, I did a B12 level. Her B12 level was extremely low, and then I got into literature that said, "Oh, well, B12 deficiency can give fatigue and daily headache," and I had never once seen that in the neurology literature in that way. Hmm. You see it under B12 deficiency. You don't see it under what should I do for a patient with this headache, and it was. The logic behind, so I was reading these nerdy articles about single cells that are actually pacemaker cells that are continuously firing. And thinking about, you know, I have patients in the hospital on weekends with stroke who have, who have B12 deficiency and atrial fibrillation. And is there something shared about these pacemaker cells between the heart and the brain that means that they are under more stress. They actually have to make their own repairs in between the beats. They have to take like two milliseconds to do these things to keep their cell healthy. So I've been reading that literature pretty heavily before this happened. So for in a moment, I was like, wow, this could be so cool. A deficiency state, we could give this back. And then they would start to sleep normally. At a very simplistic, naive way of thinking of it. So then I started to test for B12 in the same population of about a thousand people who, in whom I have sleep studies. By now I'm doing sleep studies and anybody will let me. And I've become convinced that if my daily headache sufferers can be tired, why don't I ask my epilepsy patients if they're tired? Why don't I ask them how they sleep? I'm giving them medicines that make them tired. So I don't even, I don't even address that. Could it be that, and we know now that there are certain genetic um, uh, mutations that lead to either migraine or vertigo or epilepsy in the same family. It's the same gene mutation. That means, oh, I could enlarge this idea that the primary disease was inability to rest and repair. The manifestation is in this patient, vertigo, in this one, epilepsy. We live in a time of the CAT scan of everyone. I know there's not a brain tumor. Why am I not looking for, oh, this gene mutation has been there since the beginning of this person's life. What causes it to manifest at age 23 and not before? That means there's lack of repair. The brain knows how to shore up whatever this channel mutation is that makes the cells a little bit edgy. It knew how to do that, and then we split, we had more. So over time, I'm building this idea that since neurology is filled with patients who have really genetically based disease, now I'm not. I'm not seeing in my office syphilis and neurologic complications of that or tuberculosis of the spine or polio or or diphtheria. I'm not seeing these infectious diseases or other things that used to present in 1910. Basically, most of the disease I'm seeing are genetically based, but that then prompts the question, if my two cousins have had a single seizure and I've had three, and they get to drive, and I'm 22 and I can't drive and I have to go on medicine, how can you make me into one of them? If we can test them, we all have the same gene. So I start to think of it in a really different way as one of the therapeutic options. And then I'm left with zip. I'm left with CPAP and sleeping pills. And sleeping pills, we've been trained not to go towards them. They're bad for you, you'll get addicted. So I did the most pills. With CPAP and sleeping pills because sleeping pills still made them better, but every single person wanted a different one.
0: Mm. Like they're
1: all called sleeping pills, but each person would have, no, that was terrible. The two before that loved one. As from a clinician standpoint, that doesn't make sense. What does that mean? So five years of trying really 25 different sleeping pills means that the even though we might all be failing from a specific epidemic, which is what my belief is, our way of failing, i.e. the chemicals that start to go wrong, can be unique to each person. And if I find a mimicker of the chemical that the brain's not able to make in enough, uh, in a, enough at this time during sleep, then I get success. The next one has a different chemical mix. And you start to see these chemicals like, a symphony in the background. There's the first movement and this has to come in. And then the second movement, this this chemical comes in. And then you start to see, oh man, there are a lot of neurotransmitters involved in our ability to pass through the phases of sleep. And to be frank, when you start to go into the basic science literature of, of the neurology of sleep, it's very overwhelming. Even for someone who's fascinated with sleep, there are arrows going everywhere. It is really overwhelming now. Here's the fascinating part. Once you try to read those articles and you realize that this works spontaneously, normally in all animals, that's a miracle. That means this is an engineering diagram that was fully functioning with the dinosaurs. All of these nuclei in the brainstem are the same in the dinosaur as in us. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: This was so extremely well-developed. And there's this engineer that has made us get paralyzed to repair and yet has a supervisor that's able to watch us as we're paralyzed and make sure that we don't stop breathing. That system was designed to supervise and make sure we have to paralyze this. How do we live through that? We don't strangle on our own spit. That's amazing. Hmm. So in the background, I was thinking, there's no way I'm going to understand all this in this sort of level. It's very important that the scientists try to understand it, but once you really start to get your head around it, you realize this is extraordinarily complex, and it operates on its own, and it's been operating on its own for millions of years. We are spontaneously self-assembling, and then we're self-sustaining. That's amazing. So ultimately... That's my mindset when I get into these cellular articles, and then I fall into B12, and then one of my patients mentions D. I knew I was completely naive to D. That actually gave me the stupidity to walk into the vitamin D trials that we did. I started to give out vitamin D knowing nothing about it and made a lot of mistakes and realized that the literature about D is very flawed. And because I didn't have any preconceived notions per se, I really just observed and I had a specific mentor who had put together a mental image of what D was about and using that contextual framework, I gave my patients D, did their D levels and it wasn't that hard. Within a year, we were able to show that when you get your D level above 60, all these women who were, had, didn't have REM were sleeping better. And there are vitamin D receptors all over these little cells that I've been reading about that are the timers and the paralysis cells. So that led me into a totally different mindset about what is wrong with all these young, healthy females.
0: And I must ask you Dr. Bhumna, because this is something I hear a lot from people as to why do we need supplements at all? ancestors didn't need any supplementation. Why do we need supplementation? So before we jump into vitamin D itself, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Very good question, Deepa. I really have to say that first, let me preface this by saying what I currently work in now, and I'm just, I'm a coach now. So i retired from neurology. So I'm a sleep coach now. I believe strongly that what I actually practice in is a belief system. I mean, this is a weird thing to say for a doctor, a scientist, someone who's fascinated by biochemistry. I have become aware for the first time that what I was taught as truth in 1983 when I was in medical school is no longer considered to be truth. Hmm. Also, I've now spent the last five years heavily into uh, both dentistry and the supplements. And each one of us practitioners has a strong desire to help people, but we have our own belief system. And I now really feel like instead of having just one belief system, people can hold multiple belief systems at the same time. Okay. And the advantage to that is the patient or the client you're treating actually is unique. That means you use these several sets of belief systems. If this one works, fabulous. If this one doesn't, then you go to the next one. Okay, so I have a specific belief system that derives in part from me being a healthy person most of my life. I slept well, I played outside. I'm in the generation that actually were used as the guinea pigs to do the first sleep studies at Stanford. So I know that generation well because that's what I grew up in. And then since the 1980s, these other diseases have become epidemic. Sleep apnea, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, irritable bowel were not <clears throat> taught in my medical school because they did not exist as epidemics at the time. They had been described and there were then views of how people, how humans got certain diseases, all right? So over the time before, uh, before and after the 1980s, A lot of the physicians in my age group really felt that those were kind of made up diseases because we never actually got a pathophysiology for them. So that's operating in the background in my head. And then I get into this vitamin D literature and I realize that if I decide to look at vitamin D, I can actually connect multiple other things that these young, healthy females have. Gallbladder disease, polycystic ovary disease, thyroid disease, they're all related to D in various ways. So I started with this as my idea. I started in no supplements. I'd never taken vitamins. I never needed vitamins. I was a healthy person. Mm-hmm. Then as I move into what looking at vitamin D, then I realized, oh, it's not a toxic environment. I had been in the toxic environment mindset up until then, because I had nothing else to refer to. And I was, you know, reading the same articles you are, and then I start to see these women sleep better, and their headaches go away, and their memory disorder goes away, and their mood gets better, and they get to come off their Prozac. And for the first time, I'm thinking, you know, I can't really control whether my neighbor is using Roundup or glyphosate on their plants, but I can certainly control how much I'm out in the sun. I can read about D. I can take supplement. I can measure my level. That means even though glyphosate hasn't come off the planet yet, there are other people taking on that particular challenge. My challenge, I may have something to um, give to this person to help their challenges that is different than that. So I don't mean to minimize anyone else's belief system about supplements. I do think there are many things about what I've learned about the microbiome that also support the fact in, in brief we now have good evidence that D actually helps to determine the microbiome. So that was my hypothesis back in 2012 that D was the primary do- first domino that then led to the loss of microbiome. Now that we know so much more about that, you know, 10 years have passed and a lot has been learned. I think based on my experience with my clients and with what's been written, that many of the deficiency states that other people are measuring are, be- are from humans who do not have the right microbiome. I think what we're gonna find is the microbiome has been running all the small charged ions, iron, iodine, copper, zinc, that there was an, I- an organ of the body that was responsible for making sure we absorbed just enough and not too much, probably played a role in our detoxification of things like mercury. I say that because I saw my patients go from young, healthy males, age 32, getting iron infusions. And that did not exist when I was in medical school. That didn't happen. They aren't bleeding. Eight or nine months after we get their microbiome back using B50 and D, they go to their hematologist and they won't give them their iron infusion because their iron's up again. Hmm. I said, well, what did the hematologist say? Why can you absorb iron now? So I don't know. They didn't know why I couldn't in the first place. So my suspicion is what we've seen as functional practitioners or naturopaths is a set of nutritional events that were really linked to the microbiome, that the piece that's most important of all of this is the loss of this organ of the body. And that were we're gonna continue to learn more and more about that. As a neurologist, the other piece that's just come out in 2019 is an article by Francesca Guida who uh, is in Italy and studied vitamin D dosing to mice. You lower the dose, you watch what the microbiome phyla are, you watch which species go away. And one of them provides the raw materials that go into the mouse spinal cord and becomes part of the endocannabinoid system. Ah. So she was actually taking it from D supply to the microbiome, microbiome to the endocannabinoid system showed that the pain system of the mouse was distorted in the same way that autistic kids are, that they feel light moving touch as uncomfortable. So it has a specific name in neurology, But, and she showed that you give an endocannabinoid mimicker and you can fix that in the mouse. I think that there are multiple layers to what the microbiome has always been doing for us. And I would add one other thing. I think it's helpful to view the world of supplements from an evolutionary standpoint. And so I kind of agree with the people who say we never needed supplements. I kind of agree with them. Yeah. Now, if you have always lived outside, so for instance, if you take the hunter gatherers of Africa where they have measured their vitamin D levels, their vitamin D levels are averaging at 45, high forties, low fifties. Yet I am publishing an idea that says, I want you to get your D over 60 to repair your sleep disorder, okay? You can hold both of those and say, if I've been D deficient for 20 years, And there are multiple things that that D was supposed to be doing that it didn't. I'm actually a different human. I have multiple holes throughout my body where the D was pivotal to making repairs. The person who's always lived outside has not gone through that. They did not have 20 years of deficiency. So I think supplements are extremely important. We are unique, um, perhaps in India and the US that we actually have ways to do a, an accurate vitamin D level. And we might wanna get into that a little bit. There are certain countries in the world where you're not allowed to do a vitamin D level. It's as though you're too stupid as a layperson to be able to understand this. Right. And you're not even allowed to be able to get access to vitamin D in higher than a thousand IUs. So there are federal governments that are controlling your ability to get at something that there is now research saying, you need this in bigger doses the irony of that is that the, the basic science is overwhelming, that D is everywhere, it does hundreds of things. The clinical trials are very poorly run and very misunderstood. That leaves the lay person access to information that the doctors are actually taught to ignore. That's very confusing for someone who wants to get healthy, who's seen multiple doctors, you know, on your website, you, you you talk a little bit about how you, you were led to this field because of your own health challenges. <clears throat> Most of the people that I see as clients now, their deficiency states are really the origin of why they feel so terrible. Yes. You can Watch them get better. That means, yes, the natural state we lived outdoors and we did not use supplements. The squirrels right out here are not taking supplements. However, It turns out probably 80% of the globe now is deficient because one, we have air conditioning, sunscreen, and two, if you move up the socioeconomic ladder, you don't then become someone who is digging out the dirt, planting things. You move indoors, inevitably. So that means there has been a huge wave to living indoors. That really has changed our... Our biologic
0: function in the last 40 years. And it's made such a big difference when you mention indoor versus outdoor, that's how children are today. Children um, have moved from playing outdoor with each other to being on the television and the iPad and that's that's probably a reason why there's so much autism and learning issues all over the world autoimmune conditions and you spoke about the microbiome and I was actually going to ask you that myself as to after all your years focusing on this what what are some of the um, aha moments you've had in terms of the role that the microbiome plays in quality of sleep?
1: Okay, let me back up a little bit and and give two different answers, okay? The first one was vitamin D worked for a while and then it was a big loser. By the end of the second year, most of us still had a good D level of 65, but our sleep was failing and most of us had pain, including me that was very anxiety producing because I did not have any idea why that was happening. And two of my patients came in with burning in their hands and feet. And because neuropathy is my subspecialty, that is extremely rare. Those two women presented to me within a month of each other. And the only thing they shared in common is they're both seeing me and they're both taking D for two years that blood that burning in the hands and feet the only thing i had ever seen make it better was b12 and they were already on b12 but it had a real b vitamin ring to it and because i was not educated about the you know it turns out pellagra in some of the descriptions um which is a niacin deficiency is described as having burning that was actually treated um and we'll swing around in a couple of different ways that it was treated but Those two women come in with burning and I'm very uncomfortable because I think, is it possible that by using D that we've pushed these people into a B vitamin deficiency state? That would imply, why did it take two years? That implies there are stores of this. So I'm facing off the dogma behind, oh, B vitamins can never hurt you. And we pee out the excess and there are no stores. That was the current dogma. That's still the dogma that turns out to be a lie. It's true about B12, but it's not true about the other Bs. So I'm kind of thinking that way and a patient walks in with a book for me about pantothenic acid. Pantothenic acid is B5. It is completely overlooked since the 1980s. It turns out to be a pivotal part of our nervous system. And in my belief system, it is only produced by the bugs. The microbiome produces the only source of B5 and it does so at a constant rate. And it turns out now we have a whole list of acetylcholine deficiency disorders that are linked to not having the normal production from the gut. That's all been pieced together. What happened to me was I see these clinical effects of giving back pantothenic acid as a P complex that are just really kind of miraculous. And because I'm a neurologist, I can't really believe that a vitamin would take pain away overnight or take anxiety away, or produce anxiety, produce insomnia overnight. That's what happened to my clients and my patients, but I still really didn't quite, it just didn't fit into my belief system. These are supposed to be benign things that are sitting on the shelf. You take them if you wanna feel better and that's it. No, this stuff is scary and powerful. And why is the literature so goofed up? In retrospect, the D literature and the B literature is really solid until the 1980s. Walter Stubb who wrote the D literature in the way that fits with my belief system started to write about it in the 1980s, but there was no epidemic of D deficiency at that time. It's developing in the background, but you can't see it. Mm. You're just starting to develop a population that's lost their microbiome. So the studies that were done before that are in animals and humans who have a normal microbiome. Therefore, they're not B deficient. They're only B deficient if you feed them a fully carbohydrate diet. So the studies that were done in the 40s and 50s were, came out of the prisoner of war camps in, the two, in World War II and then institutionalized peoples that were fed. So the prisoner of war camps were solid rice, three meals a day with nothing else the institutionalized children and adults were corn grueled. So they were a fully carbohydrate diet. When they gave back meat and vegetables, the deficiency state went away. In our current framework, you can see that in a different way and say, oh, the literature about probiotics is worthless. It's pumping more bacteria down there doesn't help. But the second literature, which says we feed our bugs, and our bugs feed us, that is completely true. Mm. That means if you change to a fully carbohydrate diet, you change the population in your microbiome and the guys that go away are the ones that were giving you B vitamins. So it's a different way of thinking about the same exact study groups. Now, backing up a little bit, I got into B vitamins in this backward way that was still focused on, okay, this woman brought me a book it's about pantothenic acid and the original studies in the 1950s show that if you block panathenic acid with a specific chemical blocker, then what you get is burning in the hands and feet, which I was like, oh my God, that's what my patients have. Insomnia, belly complaints, and a funny gait. Those researchers had done it in an artificial way. But when I gave back pantothenic acid, that burning went away in two days. There were many other things that happened the woman brought it to me because it was about insomnia and almost like magic this b5 in a b complex either gave them insomnia so when the dose was wrong so the original misstep was 400 milligrams was the dose given in the book and that's what's on the internet it's in the nutrition journals 400 milligrams is what you should give. In my patients, it caused 30 out of 40 of them to immediately be agitated and unable to sleep, like amphetamines. I was like, this is a drug. This is acting like a drug. How can, like, I didn't give it to them. It's sitting there innocently on the shelf at 400 milligrams, yet they had a completely paradoxical effect. And it's 30 out of 40 people using the same phrasing. That means I'm left with, okay, how do I explain this? This is peculiar. That was my original introduction. Ultimately, where we wanna be now is, okay, I don't really care about the details. I just wanna get better. What do I need to know? So ultimately it turns out D feeds the microbiome. He is one of the growth factors. We have this first domino, which is D. D, we now have literature that shows in humans, not only does it change the microbiome that it has many, many other effects. Once the microbiome population changes, it turns out that they make eight B vitamins. Those eight are meant to come as an eight pack. These four phyla bacteria have existed on our planet for billions of years before we came. Mm-hmm. They were giving each other these bacterial growth factors. That's why they hung out as a foursome. They were hanging out as a foursome. Then multicellular organisms came. Then we had those guys inside us. And as long as we live outdoors, we have D to share with them. That's what they need from us. They in turn give us the bees, which is why we can't make them. The fact that we would exist on this planet and can't make eight chemicals that are pivotal for every single one of our biologic needs has had since medical school struck me as bizarre. Like, why would we even be here? It never occurred to me that there would be an organ of a body. And even picturing the poop bacteria as an organ of the body would be a totally foreign idea until it's introduced in the GI literature, okay? So I'm in a fortunate situation of, oh, oh, here are all these interesting articles that are in the GI literature that I don't read. And oh, they're picturing it as doing this. And oh, oh, maybe this is why my patients couldn't lose weight because the bugs really determine What happens to the calories they eat? So there's this huge multi-layered effect of these biologic foreigners. I mean, we picture them as invaders, but they're really so much an integral part of our biology. So it was really by chance that I got into pentambenic acid, but it turns out that that is what's deficient that's running the sleep. So pantothenic acid plus D equal acetylcholine. Mm. So that is where this intersects for both inability to pay attention and focus during the day, which is what acetylcholine does for us while we're awake. And then once we flip the switch and go to sleep, it is a pivotal neurotransmitter to allow us to enter sleep, pass through the various stages of sleep, and to get appropriately paralyzed. It is not the only neurotransmitter. There are many, as we talked about, there are many and it's confusing. However, seeing that, oh, here's the stepwise deterioration. D goes low, microbiome goes bad, B5 goes, goes missing. Really, that means I have a, I'm walking around looking like a normal human, but I'm manifesting diseases that are really acetylcholine deficiency states. Acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter. And in the last 10 years, it also has been discovered to be work like a hormone. It runs a major part of the immune system, the acetylcholine anti-inflammatory pathway. So below the neck, it acts like a hormone. It goes through your tissues. It does all these things that are related to making rashes and to having joint pains and having autoimmune disease. I would see those two things, the sleep and autoimmunity come in parallel in my patients and was totally blown away with that. I had no no rational answer as to why that was happening but it was so consistent that I published that article in 2016. So there are these parallels that if you look back you can see one of the weird parts about talking about this is from a physician's point of view I'm just given you an overarching explanation for really hundreds of diseases. That seems too simplistic, but in actual fact, if you look at it in a different way, medicine is really about addressing what comes in the door. Like you don't have any regimens for a purple horn growing out of my forehead because no one's come to you for a purple horn coming out of their forehead. Okay. I've never looked at medicine that way before. But we only address and seek out the complaints that people have. I don't have a third hand growing out of my chest. Right. So I don't look for cure for that. Okay. That means we have seen over the last four years, certain specific things become more and more common. ADHD, autism, anxiety, depression. Many of them are neurologic illnesses, but many of them are autoimmune diseases. And these diseases are all old. They are not, oh, like AIDS, as we've never seen this before. It's not a brand new thing on the planet. They are all old diseases that are moving into younger and younger and younger populations. We don't see it that way because it's snuck up on us over 40 years. But every single one of these diseases already has a substantial medical literature. If you look at them in a different way and say, wow, could that mean getting old is really determined. There's a mechanism. Like if there are 95 year olds that still have their teeth and have no joint pain and sleep well, that means it's not related to the chronological age, that there's a mechanism in the background. Could that mean that the D goes low and we know that our production of D falls as we get into the late seventies. That means if you're still digging in the dirt your whole life around age 75, you're going to start to have sleep problems, your teeth are gonna fall out, your hair is gonna fall out, you're gonna start to have rheumatism, you start to have high blood pressure and high cholesterol and your doctor starts to put you on pills and then you die over a 10 year span. That means that all of these diseases have been described in the past and were linked to old people disease. But I have 42 year olds who lost all their teeth in the last year, they just fell out, no good explanation. Mm -hmm. So that really, Kind of brought opened a curtain for me to see our biology in a very different way.
0: And you put it so beautifully about how vitamin D drops and it impacts the microbiome, that impacts subsequently the production of B vitamins. I want to ask you when it comes to supplementation, have you found a difference between cyanocobalamin and methylcobalamin?
1: excellent question. And the the answer is, I don't know, because I haven't looked. But let me give you another thought about that. We are so advanced in our knowledge of genetics now of the human, okay, I have all these single nucleotide polymorphisms. Do those impact how I live? Okay, so that that knowledge is impressive. And then we parallel that with, gee, do I know the single nucleotide polymorphisms of those squirrels? No, I don't. And the squirrels are out there just eating whatever it is they can find and they're doing fine, okay? Some of them die early and I don't know it, okay? Mm -hmm. Some of them are dumb and they get run over by a car or fall out of the tree. But in general, there are billions and billions of animals that have lived before our knowledge. So let's look at it within that lens, okay? Single nucleotide polymorphism means not a mutation that hurts you, but one of the flavors that exist within a society. Once you can say this is a common SNP, then you should think, well, if this is common in the population, does that mean it had a survival advantage in the background that led to this person who had that, that genetic flavor to reproduce better and produce more kids. And that's why it's still there in the genome. So that's another thought. Now the third one is we are not testing because there are very few articles yet recognizing that all the B vitamins are made by the bacteria. You have to look into microbiology literature. There is a lot of literature about riboflavin and thiamine being made by the bacteria, Hmm. but we haven't stepped into it aggressively to say, G, does the bacteria actually make an array of cobalamin? Does it make an array of folate? And the answer is yes. If you look into the various speciation, if you have a normal rainbow of species, you actually get supplied with many different kinds of folate, many different kinds of B12. Otherwise, those SNPs wouldn't exist in the human. I believe those SNPs are a response to the fact that If I have an array and I might have a survival advantage by using cyano or or methylated, then those humans with those SNPs will actually show up on the planet. It is my belief that once we get back, so the, the strength of my program, which is called Right Sleep, is recognizing that the most important part is getting the microbiome back. Once you get it back, then you are now walking around with this organ of the body you didn't have. Then the next step is that organ has had many many responsibilities that it hasn't been doing for the last 20 years. That is then day 1 of them catching up with all the repairs that they were playing a role with and they will attempt to adjust your deficiency states that also implies that you will need a little extra of all of those minerals, of vitamin A, vitamin E. In my conceptual framework, SIBO, or small intestine um, um, bacterial wow. overgrowth, leaky gut, and IBS are all the same. They yes. all describe, I'm walking around without the microbiome. That then implies that if you have really had severe attack on, your, on the lining of your GI tract, if you have Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, if you have a lot of food triggers, those aren't gonna go away magically when you get the microbiome back. The microbiome then has all these effects on how the bugs interface with the immune system at the actual GI tract lining, but then it has multiple other layers that have to do with how the GI tract supplies things that allows us to make interferons, that allows us to make acetylcholine, that allows us to make cortisol. The immune system is so complex and multi-layered that what I see clinically is those who have food triggers, once they get their microbiome back, it's usually anywhere from six months to two years before those food triggers slowly taper off. And the thing that makes that happen is the sleep being normal. You must get into the healing phases for your body to make the repairs. It's not magic. You can't just throw vitamins in. Vitamins do not actually cure anybody. Having the right raw materials, which is what these vitamins are, available to the brain when it's time to repair. That's what heals people. So my focus has always been sleep is what heals us. That means anything that brain that I can come up with that the brain might want to sleep better in this unique individual, then we watch. If zinc makes you better, then you stay on zinc. If vitamin A makes you better, you always have to have a physical parameter that you as an individual can feel, and then you imbue that additional outside chemical with the power to make you sleep better. And at the end, you may not need extra anymore. Your body will tell you, no,
0: there's too much of that. Beautiful, Dr. Gumnak, and before, I know we are almost running close to our time, but I do want to ask you a little bit about, you mentioned acetylcholine, and I've heard you speak about what a role it plays in the parasympathetic response, and what actually triggers acetylcholine deficiency, and how might we actually correct that? Okay, you
1: for that question so what happened to me was i'm seeing these effects of b5 okay i give b5 and the recommended dose and my patients become agitated and can't sleep and i frankly have no explanation the book that i was brought said that b5 became coenzyme a that then made cortisol so in the in the 1960s 70s there were a whole bunch of clinical studies using that information well if it makes cortisol and we're starting to use prednisone and rheumatoid arthritis and lupus This giving this B5 should make that better. What they didn't understand was in the background, those rheumatoid arthritis patients had a low D, they lost their microbiome and giving back two Bs doesn't fix it, okay? So the chemistry, the connecting the dots for the chemistry was correct, but it's a small part of a much bigger picture, okay? Then I give back this huge dose and it's quite obvious to me that there's something about being on D for two years that makes my patients respond very differently. The dose is very different for these patients than it was in the rheumatoid arthritis patients. So then I go looking for that. Luckily, there is actually a set of studies done in the 1980s that used Walter Stump's information saying on these particular cells that run the paralysis of sleep, there are vitamin D receptors. They went the next step and said, okay, once the vitamin D receptor is hit by vitamin d what is the protein that's expressed in those cells what's expressed is choline acetyltransferase the final enzyme that makes acetylcholine. Mm-hmm. that's in the literature in the early 80s so once finding that by accident really i'm standing next to the woman who wrote the article and she tells me that i'm like oh my god this is so important well the next piece is that equals equation is choline acetyltransferase is looking for the two raw materials that come together and make acetylcholine. One is choline, the other is CoA. CoA has to have B5 as the major backbone. <clears throat> that means my patients have been making choline acetyltransferase for two years looking for B5, and in fact, sucks up all of B5 stores. And that's why those women had burning, that's why my patients had pain. So once I add B5, it is always a synergistic equation. Choline does not appear to be deficient in most. I have not seen dramatic clinical changes. But B5 is deficient in most of the people who are sick. And it's because the microbiome is not there making it. Because my patients had such dramatic responses to adding B5, it is my belief that the current dogma that says B5 deficiency doesn't exist because it's in every food is completely wrong. It is not in that form in any food. It is also my belief that the only source is from the bacteria that probably don't take the coenzyme A from the food and break it down. They probably make it from raw materials and that has not been very carefully studied yet until we actually acknowledge that B5 deficiency is everywhere. They're not interested yet. Having said that, though, that implies that if B5 only comes from the poop bacteria, when I lose my organ of the body that's supplying that, then I move into a state where I have plenty of chemistry to make the sympathetic chemicals, i.e. epinephrine and norepinephrine, But because of my microbiome and my D are gone, I have a much lower level of acetylcholine than what I need. We've pictured, so there's also a big literature on using what's, um, using heart rate variability measurements that are as a measure of sympathetic or parasympathetic tone. So the sympathetic side is constantly talking to the parasympathetic side and they have opposing actions Sympathetic side is called uh, fight flight. And that's what we're used to feeling. We have that physical feeling. Parasympathetic side, which is acetylcholine run is rest and digest. So if you look at it that way and say, well, all my patients have high heart rates. Like I would have 32 year old women sitting on my examining table who had a high 110 resting heart rate, unexplained. We have pictured it as the sleep disorder comes then we're stressed, then the sympathetic tone is too high. But what if you looked at it in terms of, oh, this is really a deficiency state that paradoxically has really just hit the acetylcholine side. That means, oh, my sleep will be affected. My ability to concentrate will be affected. My heart rate will be too high. My blood pressure will be too high. I'll constantly be in fight, fight, flight, but not because of outside stimuli, not because of the sleep disorder. The sleep disorder grows out of this deficiency it's a different way of looking at our clinical presentations and the advantage is I can't change the fact that there's more light and more noise and that you know that the, the environment has changed for this yes. individual but I can lead them a path that says okay here's what we're going to do we're going to give your bugs d then we're going to bring them back they want this b complex this b soup in your belly that favors the normal guys to come back And then once they get back, your body will start to repair the system. And you have sleep as one of your constant reminders of whether or not you're doing the right thing for your body. That then leads to a path out of this conundrum that we've been in.
0: And you mentioned the microbiome so many times. So I must ask you this, given that there's such a large section of the population now um, on SSRI or antidepressants of some kind. So what, does, what is the connection between someone who's been on an SSRI, the microbiome, and their quality of sleep?
1: Excellent question. So there is a body of literature about serotonin coming from the GI tract. I am not very familiar with that. But we know because of our experience with SSRI serotonin reuptake inhibitors, that means I prolong the action of serotonin in the brain, people's mood comes up. So one, it, it, it really turns out that there's a literature that suggests the microbiome is in our brain. There may be bacteria that actually live in our brain that give us chemicals that we need. Mm. That's a bizarre way of thinking about it. Okay, That's sort of completely against the whole teaching I had as as a neurologist to start with. But now we are. there are multiple pieces of evidence that suggest that the microbiome is directly connected to the brain. And there's a two-way dialogue. It's not the brain just talking to the GI tract. The GI tract is talking to the brain. And if the bugs are talking to the brain, that's bizarre. So on one side, there's serotonin may in large part be produced by the GI tract. Now, the next piece is the serotonin reuptake inhibitors and the SNRIs up the serotonin all the time. They don't behave like the normal brain, which is in certain states, the serotonin is supposed to go to zero. So sleep has REM, rapid eye movement sleep, which is very similar to being awake. We're having these active dreams. We have these big experiences going on. From the electrodes on top of the brain, that activity looks very much like being awake. But what distinguishes awake from REM sleep is that the serotonin is high when we're awake and it's supposed to go to nearly zero when we're asleep. Mm. That means we also have evidence that if you are taking an SSRI or an SNRI, which I gave out like candy in the 90s and 2000s, it inhibits your brain from efficiently getting into REM sleep. So when I started to see that Hundreds of women with no REM or reduced REM, my pulmonologist said, well, they're probably on SSRIs. I was like, wait a minute, I'm on one of those. Does that mean that in the short term, I feel better, but in the long term, I'm guaranteeing that I will never sleep normally again? Yeah, that's what it means. So if I was able over two years to get off my antidepressant, it took me two full years, it was very long. And I wanted to get off of it because in retrospect, now we know that my SNRI caused restless legs. And now I still have restless legs. And it turns out that my other clients that took SNRIs and got off them, it took them six to eight months before their restless legs went away. That implies that there are long-term effects and the functioning of these neurotransmitters that affect the dopamine levels, the acetylcholine levels, all these other neurotransmitters in there. I still have to use a medicine for my restless life. The implications of that are huge, and they, it really suggests that most of our mood disorders D has very direct, active effect on the mood the day you take it. It takes a it it really takes being on it for a while and experiencing the ups and downs of that to be able to recognize that that's what's happening. But that's why we feel better when we go out in the sun. That's why our animals lie in the sun because Oh, well, would there be mood connections to encourage animals to lie in the sun and therefore to thrive? Yeah, that's how biology works. It makes the animal feel better and then they encourage them to lay out in the sun. So it's not just what the microbiome is doing, it's really the D levels and the microbiome coming together. And I really think that affects the sleep and then the sleep affects the levels of the neurotransmitters that allow us to have normal mood, not be anxious, et cetera. So the sleep is interwoven with all of those other things that affect our depression and our our way of looking at the world.
0: Beautiful, Dr. Gumnak. And in fact, I must clarify to our listeners in case someone's feeling a little lost in the technicalities of our conversation that you've actually made it so clear that There's a part, so there's the vitamin D, which impacts the microbiome, which then impacts the production of B vitamins, which then impacts uh, neurotransmitters, sleep quality. And I know that I was working with somebody who had been on an SSRI for two years and then went cold turkey one fine day and just gave it up. And many years later is still struggling with several sleep challenges. Uh, So I'm so glad that you also mentioned that. But I do want us to also talk a little bit. I know we're almost out of time, but I want to just selfishly hold on for 10 more minutes to ask you about what is the actual approach? You have the right sleep program. And I know you spoke about how you work with the microbiome and bring D back to balance. So could you actually take us through a little of what actually happens for somebody who works with you in the program?
1: Okay, I actually have a website that has many different um, resources for you, podcasts like this, webinars, lots of written material, other videos and the lecturing. That material is free and it is the why. Why are we doing this? See, that's the most important thing. So the next part is there is actually a stepwise approach to what you're supposed to do in order to get this success that I have promised you. And you can picture it as uh, other eight to 10,000 of us suffered before you. Okay. So there are missteps that we've done along the way that have to do with D and using the B vitamins that are a pivotal part of why I tell you to do it a certain way. There is a workbook that is your personal assistant. So I cannot be there for everyone right now. Night. My coaching practice is full. I can't really have individual interaction with everyone who has this. There are billions of people who don't sleep normally. Hmm. I have made a workbook that tells you all the basic information of the how to do this. Very specific information about vitamins. Those ideas are different than most of the other websites. So we didn't get into... What about a better vitamin? Is it better? Is it more well-absorbed? There's some aspects about that that have developed in the last 30 years that I really find that. So there are many other opinions about how to use vitamins. I have my own specific ones that are based on what I have seen happen in my clients and especially things that go wrong. So I tell you there exactly what you're supposed to take based on what and for how long And when certain things will happen to you in response. So that workbook is something you can purchase online. It's downloadable. I now have a new version I'm about to put online today that also includes a journal. The people who are successful in this program journal at least once a week. It is very difficult to notice challenges that you've had for the last 20 years that go away and then come back because they will come back and then you move the vitamins and you recognize that these vitamins can cause these challenges. So oddly enough, low D and high D both produce the same thing in most people. Low B5 and high B5 produce the same thing in most people. So what you were experiencing when you had eczema or when you had anxiety will come back when your B dose is too high again. And you have to be alerted to that. It's not the way we were trained to think about vitamins. We think about them as, I can take them, they won't hurt me. No, they, they're dangerous. Once you get back into a more normal biology, they can make really scary things happen and they won't be new. If it were that purple horn growing out of your forehead, you'd go, ah, must be these vitamins. It's the same stuff you've been struggling with before. So I now have a journal that's included in that. It's a full year. It prompts you along the way to say, okay, you might be noticing this, you better do the following this is the stuff that's going to be bothering you to, in the in the days that that are to come so it's called the white right sleep program and it really acts as your own personal assistant for a whole year
0: perfect and do you also i recommend that somebody test this uh, every so often every three months is is it based on what i'm asking is Uh, These prompts, are they based upon just listening to symptoms or do you also recommend testing?
1: Thank you. That is a great question. The vitamin D has to be tested frequently. And there's a lot to know about the type of testing we're doing for D. The vitamin D has to be tested monthly until you get a really nice library of, oh, what does my body feel like? What are the things it tells me? My D is 55. What do I feel like when it's 65? Mm
0: -hmm. What do I
1: feel like when it's 82? You will have certain things that show up when it's at either edge of that 60 to 80 range that you need to stay in. You have to actually have that experience a few times and have a number to apply to it. And then you can't get a D-level every month for the rest of your life. And this is really a path that you follow to maintain excellent sleep for the rest of your life. So you use those physical cues and say, okay, X, Y, Z. So for me, for instance, when my D goes too high. I wake up at 3 a.m. and I can't go back to sleep again. I get a runny nose and I get a little constipated, okay? Some of those things happen when it's too low also. Then you use that, those prompts to say, oh, but I think I just got my D done. Oh, actually it was six months ago. Oh, time flies. So mm. use those as prompts to say, Should I get a D level again? The other thing that's really important about that is when we're D deficient and we start on bigger doses because we need that much, we are making hundreds of repairs using more per day. As you use D over an extended period of time, the amount that you need to stay the same slowly goes down. That means you run a big risk of running your D level too high if you're not paying attention year to year what your level is. And the only way to do that practically because we aren't gonna test it every month, we don't have home testing, is to really have physical cues that you read. The second thing I tested at the beginning is B12, because B12 is actually a separate issue. There's a specific absorptive mechanism of B12 that is dramatically affected by D deficiency. So those who are B12 deficient, it's not from the microbiome being gone or present. It's really about the absorption assisting protein called haptocorrin in her saliva that binds the b12 and then it travels down to the sudden stomach and then there's another protein that's made by the stomach cells called intrinsic factor and that mm. binds the b12 so there's a separate parallel issue b12 that is linked to d so you have to have a profound d deficiency for a long period of time and then you have a b12 absorptive problem so That is something I ask people to test at the beginning, but that's all they test at the beginning D and B12. The blood levels of most of the B vitamins are not accurate. They're not pertinent because they don't measure the brain compartment. They don't measure what's happening in the CSF and they don't measure the stores. So I haven't seen them to be clinically relevant for my patients. You can have a completely normal B5 level and be very B5 deficient. Clinically, and what you experience when you take it. So I don't have them test the other Ds.
0: Mm. Great point, Dr. Gomenak. And I'm assuming, I must ask you this in terms of, since you said you check B12 and D, I must ask you what are your thoughts on people who have a history of taking antacid or proton pump inhibitors because they're popping lime like candy today? Yes everyone
1: who has reflux has a D deficiency. Okay. Mm. So that's step one. The D has three parts in the stomach where it has receptors, both sphincters, and the acid producing section that also produces intrinsic factor. Mm. So when you're D deficient, the acid that you do make goes up into the esophagus, which is not designed to put up with acid. There's only one part of the body that is supposed to be experiencing acid. So the implications of that are large. One, that means when your D is low, your acid production is actually low. That means when your D is low, you have a perfect environment for H. pylori to grow because H. pylori cannot survive at a pH of 2.5, but it can if your pH is 7. That also implies that anyone who had Barrett's esophagus or esophageal cancer originally had a low D. It also means that the patients that I started with, all we got into D first. That also means that I didn't see any of them tell me I'm pooping out these vitamins in the same shape that I took them. So there's a whole body of literature about if you don't get the right absorbable vitamins that you can't use them in your body. Part of that is about the fact that if your D is wrong, you cannot dissolve the vitamins because Oh, you don't have enough acid. We were designed to be able to melt a piece of raw meat. Living outdoors, the sphincters are tight, the acid goes up, you melt the food. That means you can melt any cheap vitamin. It doesn't really, it's really not about the technique of making those vitamins. That is a literature that started from the bariatric surgeons who were doing gastric bypass on women and they, would, they knew they were vitamin deficient. They missed the D part. So they would poop out the vitamins and say, I'm, you know, they're in the toilet. Obviously I can't use them. I didn't have that experience because the D was the pivotal part that got that out of the picture. Also, as soon as you do D, you get the stomach working And then as soon as you get the microbiome back, you get the bugs back and they're playing a role in once that's all melted, they're absorbing the right stuff and they're picking and choosing and they're absorbing in a very actually intelligent way. So ultimately, when I take anti-reflux medicines, I'm really addressing a problem. I'm using a crutch to address a problem that I should go back to the original cause. The second piece that's really important is the proton pump inhibitors is a guy out of out of uh, the Karolinska Institute called Derasori, who's a really smart dude that just wrote an article about the fact that the proton pump inhibitors attach to choline acetyltransferase and make it permanently disabled. Suggesting, and he's got amazing amount of literature about, he's been doing acetylcholine forever. He doesn't understand the stuff he's writing about is not just important for Alzheimer's disease, It's important for ADD, it's important for autism, it's important for Parkinson's disease. Every place that acetylcholine plays a role in our body, these proton pump inhibitors permanently disable the ability of that enzyme to make acetylcholine. So it adds, so first I'm D-deficient and microbiome deficient, then I take a proton pump inhibitor and I further disable my ability to make acetylcholine.
0: Wow i mean it's just so i every every time you say something i've got 10 more questions in my head and obviously we can't go on forever so we will come to a close today but i think what was really important was also what you mentioned about your uh, journal and workbook and how you prompt people to listen to their body and look out for those cues and I think that's really important because we can't be testing all the time and I personally know that I can't tolerate vitamin D in a high dose so if it's something like a 60,000 which is what is prescribed a lot when someone is deficient um, I just lose sleep for the next three nights I simply cannot metabolize it at all Uh, and you also mentioned
1: yes it's so important everybody who's back into a normal place will be able to tell you when you get overdosed whether it's the b's or d that means we have to be the clinician has to be willing to listen to that patient that tells you this was wrong for me okay you have to listen to that there are people who when they're so deficient there's one other group that's important which is If I've been deficient a very long time, especially since birth, I have been running my biological pathways using one-tenth of the raw materials that I needed. And then I try to add a normal dose into that. Many people get extremely agitated when you try to add B50, which is the pivotal part of what I've done. That doesn't mean that they won't ever tolerate it. It means that that's too big a dose for their body at this moment. And you have to walk into it with baby steps. Also, it's very important with D, there's so much misinformation now that it's on the front page. Our bodies were never made to have doses of that size. The most that we make on our skin is 20,000. It was really made to be made daily. It was daily. This is a hormone. You would never dream of taking 18 times a thyroid dose one day a month. Yes. That's great. Yes.
0: yes, When you put it that way, when you put it that way, it makes so much sense. Yeah, it's very confusing because even the scientists
1: who've been working in this field on a petri dish or an animal level make comments about 100,000 I use once a month. No, this is a hormone. It's not a vitamin. None of the hormones are meant All of the hormones are made daily and go up and down on a 24-hour clock. The endocrinologists have known that for 30 years. That means you must respect that in using this chemical as well. It is dangerous. Vitamin D and these B vitamins are dangerous chemicals. You really do need to pay attention to them if you're going to step into them, I believe.
0: Thank you, Dr. Kumanak. I'm not, I'm going to respect your time now, but I would like you to complete our mantra of the show, which is we have all our guests complete. If sleep is the new medicine then, so how would you complete that for us?
1: If sleep is the new medicine, then we should respect our sleep is the most important thing we do every day. That Thank- doesn't mean, that, that does not mean, oh, it's important to sleep. It means sleep is the most important thing you do every day. That means you respect it, you do, you treat it like you would your child. It's an important part of your life.
0: Thank you for your time. And where can people go if they'd like to grab hold of this workbook or actually work with you?
1: My my website is DR No Period DR g-o-m-i-n-a-k because i am the only gominak on the planet because it's really kind of a made-up name through immigration um you just put in something like that
0: and vitamin d my website will pop up perfect thank you for your time dr Gomanac. and it was a pleasure having this conversation with you Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed the show. Just a reminder that this podcast is for information purposes only. This is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified health professional. This information is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you are looking for personal help, On your health journey, do seek out a medical practitioner. Please do make your own healthcare decisions based upon your research and in partnership with your doctor or otherwise qualified healthcare professional. It is in no way intended as medical advice as a substitute for medical counseling or as treatment or cure for any particular health condition. Be sure to always work directly with a qualified health practitioner before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle that may feel out of your realm of comfort or understanding. If you are looking for an allied functional medicine practitioner, do seek out more information on www.phytothrive.com or www.sleepwhisperer.pro. It is important that you have someone who is qualified and understands your health personally in order to provide adequate care, especially when it comes to chronic health conditions.